0: Quickly, I'd like to introduce Dr. Briley to you all, who I work with at Lipscomb. Um, I was trying to think of what you need to know about him. Uh, first of all, he's had a long, distinguished career teaching Old Testament. And when I first met him, he was serving as dean of the Bible department. He did a really great job with that um, interim dean. For how long was that, dean? Well, 10
1: years. 10 years, interim, <laughs> but 10 years, which
0: actually counts as not an interim, sorry. Um, I, that was my, my mistake. Um, But Terry's one of these people that we all consider, um, he's sort of one of our sage advisors, you know, he always has all this wisdom. So not only is he excellent at what he does, but he has a lot of spiritual wisdom, which I think is the kind of, these are the kind of theologians we need serving in churches. And um, he also preaches, he's a man of many talents. But what, you know, when I, I teach this class at school called God, Creation, and New Creation, and it's essentially biblical theology And when I talk about the story of creation and the theology there, I always have a few students who get really hung up on some of the details, uh, the discrepancies between the the two accounts that are happening of creation itself, or the literal historicity questions, and they keep pressing them and keep pressing them. So one day I was, I, I think over lunch, talking to Terry about this, you know, needing wisdom. And he, he had been giving me some advice, and he gently said something like, well, I've, I've written about this. I can share a few pages with you from that book. So it was so helpful, the stuff that he gave me. And I've used it. I now use it regularly. Uh, there's a class period set aside that we're going to look at Dr. Briley's stuff. And it's been so helpful. And it gets some of those students off my back, you know? And I say, <laughs> and if you have further questions, his office is that <laughs> way. You know? OK, but the other thing you need to know about Dr. Bri, well, there's two other things. One is that he regularly attends Bonnaroo,
1: and it was
0: just at the Jason Isbell concert at the Ryman on Wednesday, so he can handle this. Um, and then the other is that uh, this past, let's see, fall, fall retreat, which was in August, our students, like the undergrad students, apparently were having a conversation among themselves about there's like a Hunger Games scenario, who would go down first and why, and they decided that he, that Terry would go first because he would sacrifice himself for someone else because <laughs> he's the most Christ-like among us, so. With that, I give you Dr. Bryant.
1: <laughs> I hope it doesn't come to that. But <laughs> I don't know if I would fulfill their expectations or not, but uh, thanks, Lauren. Uh, been uh, really great uh, working with Lauren. I remember uh, Lee Camp and I had lunch with you one day at the Copper Kettle years ago and all that's finally evolved into her being a really valuable part of our college so it's been that's been fun and uh, oh I'm glad to see there is a, there is a clock and I need to get you out of here by 10 till, 10, yeah. 10, by, by 10 till at least all right it, so it just let me know. Bleed over that spot. Okay all right. <laughs> So uh, I, I was looking forward to coming out here. I, I don't get to, get to get here very often. Uh, Philip Camp and I preach at the Natchez Trace Church of Christ over near Vanderbilt, and so we're tied up there. But I always know whenever I come here, who knows who I will see that I know from uh, Lipscomb or from years past. Hi, there's Steve Sherman. <laughs> see, see all these surprises. Anyway, um, so I've been looking forward to, uh, to, to being here with you, and I, I thought back to, uh, I was probably in my mid-teens, and I uh, was uh, in an interesting youth group at the Radnor Church of Christ when I was a teenager, if y'all know that, that congregation, but uh, uh, I remember we had a really, really sharp guy in science, and he started showing me some material about Uh, which he felt like, if you understand this, you'll be able to understand the whole debate about evolution, creation, and all that. And I just looked at that stuff, and my eyes glazed over, and I thought, I will never understand this. And so I began to despair a little bit. Is that what, if you're going to ministry, you need to be able to do all that? But thankfully, I I think uh, other people can do those kinds of issues more so, and what I've sort of learned and tried to do over these years is to try to learn how to read the Bible in a healthy way uh, and see how that, what part that plays in the, in the larger picture. So I uh, hope this outline doesn't scare you. I wasn't sure I was going to do this, and uh, Jason I gave him the last minute to, uh, to copy this. We're going to run through a good bit of it pretty fast. And uh, partly for that reason and for a few other things in there that it might help for you to be able to see, I just wanted you to have that. So I'll try to follow it, and I'll I'll run pretty quickly through some of the the first half or so of it and then try to slow down a little bit uh, toward the end. But uh, a lot of this is is related to this uh, notion of contextualization. Uh, Nice long word, but... uh, so I wanted to clarify that a little bit and see how that plays in. And I mentioned here uh, that, that missionaries have helped us a lot uh, because they inevitably go into other cultures and they uh, begin to understand and experience how they have to um, adapt to this new culture and trying to bridge the gap and communicate the gospel in these different settings. And so I mentioned this uh, one uh, very prominent uh, missionary, British missionary from the 20th century, Leslie Newbegin, and uh, he uh, had gone to India as a missionary and seemed to have done a great job in terms of trying to really immerse himself and understand the culture there and try to find the way to bridge uh, the gap. Uh, And and then, uh, after a number of years there, he came back home to England and he recognized these cultural shifts that were going on, that are still going on, that we we, uh, wrestle with today, uh, that that made him recognize he needed to now come home and do the same kind of cultural education and uh, bridging that gap uh, where, when he left, he felt like, well, I and the Gospel are very much at home here, Uh, that that has changed. And if you know anything about in the UK uh, in terms of Christianity these days, uh, certainly um, that's a foreign territory now, not anything like the historical uh, notion of, of Christianity in the in the Western world and so he was dealing with this uh, transition of course into a modern world and that, that's where the role of science comes in and uh, the, the the competition the contest between science and faith uh, that uh, that arose which I think you know we as Christians have to take some blame for in other words those battles were probably, uh, worse than they had to be because of the way we approach them. Um, not that we have to carry all the, the, the blame for that, but at least some of it. Uh, and, and so he was facing that, and then also this newer more uh, vague kind of notion of, of postmodernity modernity where uh, after you've dealt with the, the, the rise of our, our sense of our intelligence and our ability to, with science and technology, to figure everything out and solve all of our problems, uh, you begin to realize, oh well, um, that uh, hasn't worked as well as we thought. In fact, we've created new problems, and on the deeper human level, uh, we really are, are maybe worse off than we were, even if our disease rate and some things like that are, are, are improved. So uh, I think a few have come in, uh, a few more, if you want to get a, a handout to them. But uh, and, and so one thing that I think is, is uh, concerning, there's a number of concerning things about that, but one of them is that once... Uh, the Bible and Christians were facing a, a bit of a, of an onslaught from the standpoint of uh, of science and reason. Um, that what we did was, when we fight those battles, we tend to adapt to. I'd say this, but quote the enemy, right? We tend to adapt to fight that warfare, and in the process, uh, that uh, the way we read read the Bible was an attempt to try to sort of meet the opposition on their own ground and fight the battles, which was detrimental to the way we read the Bible. And we don't have time to go much into that, but the notion that we have sort of uh, become uh, rigid, and this is where you get the, in the liberal uh, conservative controversy and uh, the, the, uh, the battles that were fought there over inspiration and inerrancy and all those kinds of issues uh, represented sort of a, a shift to meet the opposition on their own terms, whereas historically, if you look back, uh, you you find that there was a a sense of, well, the Bible, we can read the Bible uh, on different levels, you know, and there are multiple ways that that we, we read the Bible, and you find that in Christian tradition. Um, I've also looked a little bit because I went, uh, did my uh, doctoral work at a school called Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, which is a Jewish school. And so if you trace uh, rabbinic teaching, you realize that centuries and centuries before the modern issue, modernity became the issue. The rabbis were carefully reading the text and they were finding these issues and these concerns and they were trying to find ways to understand and grapple with them and they didn't always agree. Uh, and, and so that's one of my, my concerns that we've gotten uh, through these battles. We've sort of gotten to a point where uh, we've got these like rigid opposite camps that are so far apart that we can't even seem to have dialogue or communication anymore. So maybe that's a little too much on that, but the idea with with Newbigin was he came back home and that's the kind of situation he was coming back into. And so he wrote a great deal from the perspective of both a Bible scholar and a missionary uh, to, to sort of address these dilemmas that we face about how do we communicate the gospel into um, not only a foreign world, you know, in India with a very different kind of mindset and, and religious tradition, traditions, um, but, but also in the West that has, that has been, quote, Christian you know, for, for so long. Um, so that, that plays into, obviously, this larger uh, kind of issue that, that you guys, it seems like, are talking about in this, uh, in this class. Uh, another example before I try to define this, this notion of contextualization, the one I mentioned, if you, if, th- you might find this book really interesting, the ones mentioned there called Peace Child. Uh, so it's about these missionaries who went in fairly early into Papua New Guinea, and, and there were just a lot of little individual tribal groups uh, there. And um, they had not, been in, not encountered the gospel at all, and they were uh, pretty violent. So these missionaries were going into a really difficult situation. And one of the things that they discovered is that in these, in these cultures that uh, they value the ability to try to win someone over, like as a friend, and then deceive and betray that person, and then, to put it crudely, you know, have them for dinner, not have them over for dinner, have them for dinner. Right? And so what? you what, think about that with regard to the, to the gospel, uh, they face this dilemma. What if we try to communicate the gospel, and they, they go to Judas? Right? Judas would, might tend to be seen as the, the, the one that, that would be the model there for them. And so they really had to struggle and work hard to finally find a way to bridge that gap and to communicate the gospel. Into that situation, so again, uh, a, a changing world, a lot of challenges. That's sort of what we're what we're dealing with. So let me distinguish contextualization from the idea of context, which you probably um, talked about before. When people say, you know, you, you misunderstood me, you took my words out of context, or and you know that might mean well, uh, you didn't take into account everything I said, or you don't take into account that I was joking, or quoting someone else, or, you know, there are all kinds of ways to take people out of context. And, and then in the Bible, we also have uh, a lot of different kinds of material, and you don't necessarily read Revelation the same way you read Romans. Uh, so you have to uh, adapt to that. So you have all these different aspects of context in the Bible. But what I'm focusing on here is what I call more of a process, a process of the revelation of the Bible, wherein I think Newbegin and others, other missionaries are really following God's lead. Where throughout the Bible, God is doing two things at the same time, They're simultaneously happening. One, we could describe it as accommodation or meeting people where they are, but then at the same time, calling people to some often radically different understandings. And I almost think of the first part as being almost like the packaging versus what's inside the package, uh, you know, where you are connecting. How do, what does it take to connect? What did it take for begin to connect the gospel to people in India? What did it take uh, Don Richardson and, and that team uh, to, to connect and find a way of conveying the gospel clearly to uh, those people in Papua New Guinea? Uh, and, and those two are not the same, right? And, and so what is it like to communicate the gospel to someone who lives in 19th century America versus 21st century America? So there's a challenge there for us. But it's a challenge that, that God has modeled for us. You know, and the clearest example, of course, is in Jesus, right? This is, this is God's ultimate contextualization of the gospel in meeting us where we are. But even then, he met those people where they were, not exactly meeting us where we are today. So there is this process going on. Now, I try to use some analogies here that, you know, as you as you teach a child, you have to, again, try to say, I, uh, I could speak about uh, quantum physics to you, but I think maybe I'm going to have to, you know, find an easier way to get into what I want to talk with you about, and you're not ready for this yet. So another thing that's discussed in the Bible is the, the notion of progressive revelation. As somebody who teaches mostly Old Testament, that's really important for me because some people look at things in the Old Testament and they think, well, what Jesus said was better, and so everything just gets dismissed, not realizing that there is very foundational material there that's vital for understanding what comes later, but yes, it is a building. It is a building process. So progress, meaning that God is leading Israel and even, I would say, leading the church farther along in terms of understanding what we are called uh, to do and to be. Um, so And, and then this, this point, sort of in the middle of the page here, that small Roman numeral three, uh, I really want to highlight that a little bit. Uh, when I say the relative lateness of the Old Testament, so... Can you make sense of what's in parentheses there? The Bible begins with, quote, in the beginning. But the beginning of the Bible occurs in the time of Moses. I think that's a really important distinction. So the Bible takes us all the way back to creation, takes us back to in the beginning. But the Bible starts with Moses and Israel and the Exodus. And the importance of that is that God is communicating the story from creation up to their time, their story, and, and the story of God's work of redemption, uh, to that particular group of people. And when, we, when the Bible opens, you've had long-standing history of all of these other uh, faiths. All, and, and pagan sometimes sounds like a derogatory term, but I mean more in a technical term. These pagan cultures. And, and so God is trying to help Israel understand the difference between essentially what everybody else believes, the way they see the world, who is God or who are the gods, what are they like, who are we, what's our relationship with them, what's our place in the world. And there's a lot of bridge building to be done there. And yet at the same time, as we see in this little list at the bottom of the page, There were all these things, many of them, revealed in the creation account that are so different. And here's the problem for us, of course. We go down there to what's distinctive in the biblical message. These things don't sound so distinctive to us, most of them, perhaps. It's just like, yeah, 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 I know that. I've heard all my life. But for Israel in their world, the notion of one God... The notion of a peaceful creation process in which God is not part of the creation, nothing in the creation is deified. The prohibition about humans making any kind of images from anything in the creation to represent God. Uh, The fact that all humanity was created uh, with a high calling, everybody in the image of God, everybody called to be in this priestly royal role in the world. What is said in Exodus 19 to Israel and is repeated in the New Testament, we are called to be a priestly kingdom, a kingdom of priests. We don't have a human king. Israel made that mistake, but we don't have a human king. God is king, and we are, some call it, co-regents. That is, we share the reign with God, all of us. In the ancient world... Maybe the royal family, the wealthy, the priestly caste, they might have been seen in some really exalted ways. Everybody else, just lowly, you know, lowly beings. That was a very different situation. The biblical creation account gives some careful attention to the creation of woman, which is not evident in the other accounts. The notion of Sabbath, radically different. What I mean by disinterested righteousness, that next one there, is the idea that we are called to love God for God's own sake. God is not a means for us to get the safety, the security, the reward that we want to get. We are called to love and seek and serve God for God's own sake. And I think many of us as Christians still, you know, I, I, we, you know we struggle to remember that, that notion. That was radically different. The gods were there to protect the people, to give them what they needed, you know, if, they can, if they knew the right ways of getting through to them. And that sort of goes along with the next point where we have a God who is beyond need and manipulation. I love Psalm 50. If you're not familiar, that's the one where God says, uh, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. I wouldn't need you to feed me or provide you know, that for me. And so basically, um, you know, there's two notions about God. Either God created us or we created God. Right? And if it's the latter, why would you create a God that you don't have any kind of leverage with? That is, you can't find a way to get God to do what you want God to do. Why did God have such a prohibition against all kinds of, of magic and witchcraft and spells in the Old Testament? Because those were all attempts to bypass God to get what you want. It's a very different kind of notion. And all these things are, are, are most, many of them, as I say, they come up in the creation account. So in the creation account, I think you have, as I'm going to try to suggest, some things that were accommodative to the people of that day, that, you know, from our perspective, we would like to see a different kind of creation account, right? We would like to see a lot of other questions answered. We don't get that. Uh, But it did uh, help them understand, well, what, what is he trying to tell us here? So you frame it in a way they can understand, and then you fill that frame or that packaging with some pretty radically different content. So that really says a lot about the way I'm trying to look at and and, and read the creation account. Okay, so we move on over to the second page. Sorry, run so fast here. Uh, There was a teacher at Hebrew Union who predated me, a man named Samuel Sandmel, who coined this term parallelomania. Okay, so you've probably read about this where people will talk about things in the Bible that are paralleled in the world of their day. And, and for some people, that means they believe that, well, the Israelites in the Bible just sort of borrowed here and borrowed there and put these things together and sort of cobbled together their own uh, religious faith. That doesn't stand up to the distinctiveness that's there, that, that theory, that idea. But there are these kinds of parallels. And those parallels are worth examining, right? Um, but but what, what Samuel was suggesting, and to this day, I mean, that goes back quite a ways, today scholars still really are are try to be conscious of this principle, that a parallel does not necessarily imply dependence or borrowing. And the other side of it is that it's not fair to look at the similarities between this and this without looking also at the differences. And in reality, it's the differences that are the most important things. And so when he says parallelomania, that's what he's talking about, or when I use, a, use his term, uh, where people look at similarities and they, they go too far with that. So for, here's an example. When uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and then you know gradually being released uh, and you began to find out something about this community that, that uh, produced these documents, um, there were people who saw some, some parallels between that community, and John the Baptist. And so they started suggesting that, uh, well, John the Baptist probably belonged to that community. That's a false leap, <laughs> and, and, and not really anybody I like, think seriously considers that, but that's the kind of, of example that, that people would, would often use. So It's not surprising to see the parallels, and I guess what I'm trying to suggest is not just that, well, it's not surprising to see those parallels because they lived at the same time, but trying to make the point that in the Bible, God is deliberately using those connections to frame a message that in the end looks very different from anything else of the surrounding culture, not something that they just cobbled together or borrowed from um, these other groups. Uh, so I'll give you some examples of, uh, in this uh, Roman, large Roman numeral 4 there about some of these parallels. Like you do have uh, parallel creation accounts and flood accounts, and there are a lot of similarities. So just let me highlight probably the most distinctive contrast with the uh, flood parallel. So you have the flood, the boat, you know, the animals getting out of the boat and offering a sacrifice. But in the Gilgamesh epic, the notion was that the floodwaters receded and the hero came out and offered sacrifices because the gods were starving and they swarmed on the sacrifices like flies. Well, that doesn't match the biblical picture. So there's similarities, but there are significant differences as well. And maybe we can't explain all the similarities, but we're looking also at the contrast. Then, when you have things like temples, priests, sacrifices, ritual purity, king, prof- kings, prophets, all of these things existed before Israel did. So say the Bible begins with Egypt and Moses. That's the really you know the, the timing of the beginning of the Bible, and all these things were already well established. So Israel had them too, but in every case, they don't look the same. There are differences that some people might seem subtle, but in reality, are substantive. Um, And then uh, the literary forms. uh, I had a a teacher at at Hebrew Union who told me that um, the rabbis have parables too, and he actually confessed. He said, I actually think Jesus's are better, uh, but we have parables too. Jesus didn't invent the parable, right? Um, These are different ways of communicating Uh, All these things already existed, but they were filled with new theology and content as they're used in the Bible. Um, And then even the use of, you've probably run across these labels before, Leviathan and Rahab and Behemoth in the Old Testament, these were classic mythical creatures that are are seen as significant in terms of the nature of the world, and and the Bible (coughs) incorporates them in a way that says, and the point that's being communicated is, you think all these beings are significant? They're like playthings to God. That everything, whatever is, is ultimately rooted uh, in God. And then just a lot, of, a lot of issues that we see in the Bible and in the Old Testament where um, a person could read the Old Testament laws and find a lot of them that seem rather offensive in a number of ways, um, but if you are able to look and see how they fit into the <laughs> laws like of Hammurabi and other, other law codes of that day, you'd say, wow, these are really different. So they were very different and challenging and demanding in their time, even if to us they might look regressive. Um, so all of those things are, are, are examples um, of that. All right. So let's move on down to spend a little time with uh, with the creation account there at the bottom of that second page. Um, so what I uh, head, head up that up with is the notion that there are some indications that we shouldn't necessarily read the creation account in a what I've called here straightforward way. I don't know the best way of saying this, but but perhaps there's something more going on here than meets the eye on the surface. And what I want to do up front is just to sort of affirm. Um, where I'm coming from here is, and I think this is as biblical as it can be, um, I'm not trying to provide a way where we can reconcile the Bible with science. That's not the goal. I'm not trying to let science lead the way and I've got to make the Bible fit into it. What I'm saying is, let's read the Bible carefully and see what it's indicating about what we should do with it. That's as biblical as it can be, right? Let the Bible tell us and, and it does so sometimes in subtle ways, what it's trying to do. And if we understand, again, the world and the setting and the context, that helps some as well. So uh, what about the two accounts of, of, of creation? So what I've suggested here is that they have different emphases, um, but that they are complementary. I mean, you can say that about the four Gospels. Each of the four Gospels has different emphases, but they complement one another um, in the end. So I think that's true here. Some have suggested that that there were just these two creation accounts floating around, and they said, I don't know, let's just throw them both in there. Uh, And I I think there's something a little more involved than that going on because I do think that they complement one another. But the fact that we have the two accounts, it can help us uh, maybe see that there's more than one thing going on here in the the account. So in the first account... uh, That humanity is the climax, right? The the last element of creation. The climax, in fact, both accounts highlight humanity because, again, God's trying to communicate to Israel humanity was created with a special nature and purpose. And that's what he's trying to highlight here. And everything is good. But in the second, there's a sort of a sequential kind of complication there. One, where... Um, everything is good in the first, and what I'm trying to suggest here is that in the second account, there are a couple of things that are not good. All right. One is explicitly stated as not good, and the other one maybe is just sort of implied. So the first one is, it talks about, and remember, in the second account, you just start right off with humanity. You don't deal with like all this other stuff first. It goes straight to, to the creation of humanity. But in chapter 2, verse 5, we see that the vegetation has not sprouted yet because... Uh, humanity, part of humanity's role, is to tend and care for the vegetation, and so that's what leads to the creation of Adam. And in a way, again, it highlights that humanity has an important role in the creation. Right? So that's uh, that. That's that. In that second account, it's basically saying that uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, this is not not right yet. And in the second example, it's much more clearly where you have instead of in the first account, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good, right? You have it's not good for the man to be alone. And so the, the nature of the description of the creation of male and female, first account doesn't really describe the creation separately of male and female, but it says that it's male and female together who constitute the image of God in humanity. But in the second account, you have something that is not good, and then God fixes it. So in both accounts, there's a kind of a, there's a little bit of a, the Bible does this a lot, sort of a tension, or, you know, sort of, wait, what's what's going to happen, what's going to happen, what's going to happen, then, you know, you, you get it resolved in the end. Then secondly, with regard to the days of creation, uh, one thing I think we could, we could see that this is, a, this is an, an orderly description of the account in contrast to the pagan notions of God's battling and a, a, a slain God being cut in half to make uh, half is used for the sky and half is for the earth and things of that nature. Um, but it is, it is very orderly. But it also models. You know, in the end, God rested or ceased from his labors. God's work is a model for human work, right? Where you work, yes, but you also rest. And and so it really is conveying something, which, as I said, that notion is (laughs) unique. You don't have that notion of rest, for the average person anyway, uh, in the other other accounts. Um, And so uh, uh, on the last page there we look at this model, but just one other thing at the bottom of that page, the idea that the, uh, the firmament, or now sometimes it's called the, the firmament, I guess it was the King James language, but the, the vault or something like that. The, the, the word that's used there is, is what's used, uh, like if you, if you were a craftsperson and you were making a, a copper bowl and you put some copper over a, like a, mo- a model and you hammered it out until you had a thin sheet of copper that made a bowl, all right, that was sort of the notion of this dome over the creation. And that's the way the people of that day saw the world. They didn't have all of our tools, right? But That's the way they saw the world. And, and when you go over to the flood account, you even have this, this same notion that they had that it's like, well, this hard dome over the disk of the, of the, of the world uh, has, has to have holes in it so that the water above can come down through and provide the rain that is needed. And so the Bible sort of echoes that. That's packaging. That's connective material. It's not what is most important in the account. That's not what the goal is in the account. So if you look on the last page then, you have this uh, uh, sort of a picture that shows the parallel between the first three days and then the uh, fourth, fifth, and sixth days. And there's a nice symmetry here where a separation or a division of major elements, the light from the darkness... (coughs) then the sky above from the waters below, and then on day three, the water from dry land. All that's very logical. And then what happens on four, five, and six demonstrates what corresponds to that, what you fill the heavens with, what you fill the sky and the waters with, what you fill the land with, including the creation of humanity. So there's a nice kind of pattern. And so if this is intended, which I can't imagine it's not an intended kind of pattern, the way we tend to look at the six days is one, two, three, four, five, six, right? We're thinking about sequential, one through six. But there is a pattern here that suggests it's one through three and four, five, six. And that shows something, again, about God's, uh, the nature of God's creation. Um, remember, the, the count starts off, the, the, the way it was uh, without form and void, Formless and void, um, those are words that are used later on. Isaiah uses those words sometimes to refer to, like, the chaos of the world when things aren't going as it should. So things were in that chaotic state the way it was understood in the ancient world, and uh, God stepped in and gave order to that chaos. And this is a beautiful picture of that, All right? But then it does uh, create, well, I mean, this, 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 this pattern actually, I think, solves <laughs> A dilemma or two of logic here because uh, as I mentioned that um, the first three days are described as there was morning there was evening first day there was morning I mean there was evening there was morning the second day right uh, on, on the first three days uh, and you have God saying let there be light and there was light on day one and uh, that's part of that separation of light from darkness but then you come to day four and the sun, the moon, and the stars are created to fill the sky, and they are the things that govern days and seasons and time in general, including evening and morning. Right? And so that is, a, is an internal indication that maybe reading this sequentially is not the primary intent. Maybe this other pattern is really what it is that we're supposed to be seeing. And as I mentioned uh, earlier, the, uh, the idea of when the vegetation is created, when you compare it to the second account, where there, there, there are different themes being highlighted in these, uh, in these two accounts. So, uh, one, one of the things that we talk about in terms of scripture and how we read it, the notion. Uh, If I said, which is better, literal language or figurative language? It's a trap. Trap question. (laughs) You might like literal better, or you may like figurative better. You know, you may really love poetic language, or you may really love, you know, lay it out, make it plain. But neither one is better. They're just two different ways of communicating. And the Bible contains plenty of both. Most times, it's very clear. Sometimes, not so clear. Yeah. So, for example, this goes back to like some different literary forms. When Jonathan Swift, uh, they, re- they released that modest proposal about fattening up poor kids in the time of the British famine so that the wealthy could eat them. Yeah. There might have been some people who took that as a serious proposal because he didn't get to the end and say, just kidding. <laughs> sort of undermines the whole point, right, of saying it that way. Um, but, but you would have misunderstood him if you thought that that was a serious proposal for how to solve the hunger problem. It was a satirical way of addressing some deeper kinds of problems and issues. So the Bible conveys things in a lot of different ways, and we have to try to be sensitive, first of all, to those different ways of conveying truth, and also to be um, um, sensitive to what is the text really trying to say, especially as it has to do with accommodating the audience, accommodating those who are receiving it. So the creation account came into a world with firmly established general notions about the nature of the world and how it came to be. The biblical account, in multiple ways, even including the way it describes the creation itself, stands apart, as a radically different picture, but it was not a scientific picture because that would have spoken to no one then. Um, That's sort of the situation that I I think we're in there. So, all right, yeah, I, I think I've made it where we have a little time left at the end. The
0: question I always get from my students is, but did the audience think this was literally true? or did they not? Because when we hear scientific, we think literal. Yeah. What did they think in terms of, was this literally true to them or is that category not even work when we're talking about this kind of audience?
1: Um, it is a little hard to answer because, you know, when we talk about trying to understand the culture and the ways that they communicated, we can't really completely put ourselves back into their shoes. And so it would have been hard to know exactly how how they heard it. They would have definitely heard it as something radically different. uh, In every way, in every way. Both the the form and the function or the content, they would have heard it as as very different. Uh, and, and, And in that light, though, one of the things I think that's really important to understand in the Old Testament, Israel throughout the whole Old Testament Very little time of the Old Testament did they demonstrate that they really got and embraced this. You talk about these distinctives. How many times did Israel truly reflect that they understood and they accepted and they were committed to living out those distinctives? The answer is not very often. I've been teaching the story of Israel for (laughs) over 30 years. (laughs) And every time I go through, it's like, Whoa! You know, there's just really not a whole lot of not a lot of continuity. But what I think that says to some extent is that that this was really hard for them. It re- it really does demonstrate the radical degree of difference. But um, what was what was it? So in, given that difficulty, what was it that was most important for Israel to get? And and it was not the details. It's not the process as much as the underlying truth that was being conveyed. And in fact, you can go to uh, Job 42, Proverbs 8, numerous places where there are other descriptions of God's creation that are in poetic form. And there are suggestions in parts of Genesis that there is a poetic element there as well. The Enuma Elish is poetic. That Babylonian creation account is poetic. So I think they would have been accustomed to the notion of conveying these big ideas in poetic form. And if you say, should I understand this more literally or more figuratively, uh, if it's poetry, you know, the nod the you know, leans toward more figurative. If it's the law, it's the other way. It's the other way around. Although I think an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is a formula, not a <laughs> literal, anyway, that's another story. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Gee, the basic lesson here seems to be that God created everything that you see. Right. One God. Why has it become a point of faith that we have to believe exactly how he did it? Well, we probably couldn't understand that even today. Yeah. When, uh, when, uh, People of faith and, and scientists uh, began to be very suspicious of one another, and um, it pushed them you know, farther apart. Then it was like, you got to pick a side. And I don't think either side probably is right. <laughs> either of those sides is right. It's not, it's not the ultimate uh, purpose, for sure. Because again, when you go to those more poetic accounts, they're not concerned with logistics. They're only concerned with the fundamental... You know, truth about God and who we are in there. And, and, and so these are not, those truths are not, up. <laughs> biblically, they're not up for debate. You know, other things might be, but not those fundamental truths about who is God, who are we, what's our role in the creation. And again, all that stuff was radically different and new from everything else. I mean, Israel's this tiny little speck in an ocean of difference. That you went to Hebrew University, uh, how did the Jews interpret Genesis? It seems to be more dichotomy between Christians and science. Yeah, and I haven't heard that. No, there's not nearly as much, and uh, and you do have different branches. You have three main branches of Judaism: uh, Reform. Which is the more most uh, open, uh, open-minded, and about uh, uh, how you read the Bible and everything else, and then conservative, and then of course the Orthodox would be the uh, the, the strongest. And so um, I'm guessing in Orthodox circles there might be a, a, a stronger adherence uh, to that, but. Uh, again, when you, when you read the, if you read the rabbis, and this goes back centuries and centuries into the past, they were wrestling with some of these issues, and they didn't have a science foundation to you know, come to that conclusion, but they, they definitely were, uh, seemed somewhat open-minded about some of those debates that weren't at the heart of, of the revelation. The, the, the Bible,
0: outside, living outside of time mm-hmm.
1: as we know it, what are your thoughts? Uh, does the Leviathan live outside of time? Leviathan. <coughs> um, well, I, my my take on this, in terms of Leviathan in the Bible, is that the pagans had a notion that this was this was this was sort of connected to the whole their whole view of the world and the gods and everything else, and that the Bible is merely um, ad- adopting it as uh, a foil. That makes sense. In other words, the Bible's not taking Leviathan seriously. The Bible is actually sort of making Leviathan instead of some massive fearful thing, like a pet, you know, that God. So it's, I, I, it doesn't, I don't think it doesn't address really those issues. I, I don't think it would, would certainly affirm anything of that nature, like uh, you say, of like pre creation or whatever. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Y'all give them a hand. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>
0: I tried to.